everyone, quick special announcement for you all. So we'll be co-presenting another screening at the New Art Theater on November 10th. As part of our Cinenation Presents screening series, we'll be doing Children of Men from Alfonso Caron. We've talked about this movie on the podcast before. It's a fantastic film. It's a masterpiece, and you get to see it on the big screen, which is, I think, a, a great experience. Tickets are on sale now on the New Art Theater's website for $5, so get them while you can. I'll be doing an intro beforehand, so I hope to see you all there. But did you do anything this weekend for Halloween? Uh, I went to I went to a haunted house. How was that? It was fantastic. I had always heard there's a house in Atlanta that I've always heard is like one of the top in the country, and I've always kind of been like, eh, sure, okay. <laughs> um, and then obviously, you know, the past few years it's been kind of weird. I think they did like a drive-through year one year, but I finally, like this year, I started a group text. I got mm-hmm. a bunch of people in it. I was like, we're doing this this night, and then like slowly but surely, one by one, everybody was like, I don't know, I'm kind of busy uh, that night. I'm like, mm-hmm, yeah, sure, busy, yeah, busy or busy. scared. Uh, <laughs> so it literally ended up being like me and one other friend who went and I was like, dude, it's you and me. We got this. And it was incredible. Shout out nether uh-huh. netherworld in Atlanta. It is like it. I mean, I was, I was expecting like the production design of it all, but I mean, there are, there are like two story tall animatronics like this, mm-hmm. this year, their theme was kind of like elemental horror. So you come around a corner and there's just like a giant, like Lovecraftian, monster oh, like wow. towering over you it was it was really insane and it, i go in for all the like production design of it all and and this was fantastic oh yeah it was funny going off that because i don't know if i've talked about it on the show yet about us going to horror nights yeah uh, here here and and i never been before and it was fun and it was funny i think the best one and this is like this is across the board whole group was pretty much the best one was the like uh, Latin America, mm-hmm. like one they had, like not not the big like like Evil Dead or Last of Us was also they like Last of Us. Those are the top two. I didn't get to do that one, but like there was this Latin America one that was like the one, towards the front that like no one was going to, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was amazing. I like, said so the production design was amazing. Was the thing because it went into like kind of like Latin America like mythology and folklore and these kind of cool like almost like Guillermo del Toro type of. Uh, like monsters mm-hmm. it was awesome it was awesome like I, I like a live experience you know live experiences are great live experiences are great yeah and then i i, I did beat my record for spooktoberfest so oh did you we're up to 25 i think now which last last year i did 22 oh that reminds me <laughs> i'm gonna tell you what i'm gonna talk about tourist trap oh yeah I watched you it. watched it i did Isn't it fantastic <laughs> So and some people have watched it based off me watching it now is the thing. So we've weirdly sub, like spread it's the word. So, about tourist it's so it's so like weird, but it's great. It, and it's it, yeah, it really is somebody that's just like I'm gonna make Psycho, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like House of Wax all at the same time, and they and they do it. They pull it off. They really do. Well, I my my, my I read I wrote more. My top my top comment from my review was like I said, uh, um chuck connor's watched texas chainsaw massacre was like hold my beer <laughs> like like he legit is just wild um and i i, I just i was like god thank thankfully he wasn't that great sport because <laughs> like you know, he was fine but like man he he's it's a, it's an insane performance and the score is great and, 
I love the, the final was. shot. The score was great. The final shot of the movie is fantastic. I had to rewind it. <laughs> I was like, what just happened? <laughs> um, no, yeah, it was wild. Um, I'm trying to think what else I watched so far. That's kind of been the... I, I've been like catching up on my ladder box of actually writing stuff that I've seen. I, I just I just today knocked out... I think every year there's like a, a dark horse on Shudder that like everyone uh-huh. watches on like horror letterbox and horror t- and horror twitter and i don't know if you've seen any anything about it this year but this year for me everybody's been watching brotherhood of the wolf i saw you watch that and it's been on my watches for a while so i just i oh man what a i it's everything it's everything you could ever want out of a movie it's Mm -hmm. it's a two and a half hour french blockbuster (laughs) from 2001 about uh set in like just before the french revolution and this town is being plagued by a werewolf and this like naturalist who just got back from America and his like Native American companion who's played by Mark Dacascos from Iron Chef, the, the chairman from Iron <laughs> Chef. Uh, they get sent to like track down this werewolf and they're they go out and the like royal family that, that like oversees this town is uh, Vincent Cassells, very young Vincent Cassells. Wow. And. They're like the the Mark Dacascos, many people might know, especially if you saw John Wick 3 or any of his films in the 90s as a martial artist. So there's like martial arts. There's like French court romance. There's some very artful uh, transitions that are very impressive. And it's just like, where's this movie been hiding all my life? And you you just like (laughs) shout out whoever on Shudder was like, you know what? We're going to take this one this year. And I know so many yeah. people online have been like, yeah, I just came across it on Shutter," And I was like, all right, let's fire it up. And now we're on to November. Not as we're recording this, but as it's coming out, we're doing November. <laughs> but like I said, it's a wonderful time of October stuff, noir stuff. And I'm just excited to dive in this whole new series this month. Before we do that, I'm Brian Sparks. I'm Thomas Horton. And this is the Nation Podcast. And with November, can you explain November to people? If, if someone hasn't listened to our podcast every year but also, who's not maybe as big as not, film not on film Twitter, um, film Twitter and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly have no idea at this point how far it goes back. But like Turner Classic Movies does does it. Uh, people yeah. on Twitter do it. It's it's just a, I think especially like we kind of said last month, there's something very nice about October where it's like you're going to watch this genre of film. It just helps. Yeah. For those of us who like to explore and watch new yeah. things, it is it helps to be narrowed down to one genre for a month. So, for a month, yeah. so I think kind of coming off of the heels of that, somebody was like, "I want to make November like a month to to watch yeah. like one thing," and that became Noir November. Mariah Gates, who's a who's a critic now, she actually does it. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Um, but for anyone who's who's not aware, Noir is. We've we've done like straight up noir months. You can go back and, and listen where we really dive into the origin of it. But it's, uh, you know, these these crime movies of the um, the 1940s, uh, mostly because a lot of yeah. the um, and and it's, so it's this idea of like crime and, and sometimes police, sometimes detectives, sometimes the people committing the crime. Gangsters can be film noir as well. Um, yeah. But it's the subject matter and it's the visual style uh, in that we had a lot of these directors coming over from Germany, uh, kind of fleeing the war. And they had come up under German expressionism, which was a visual style that was very 
There's a lot of uh, shadow, a lot of contrast. Uh, for anyone in modern audiences, you probably most closely associate German Expressionism with like the style of Tim Burton. Uh, yeah. And like, oh, yeah, yeah, especially Batman Returns, like Beetlejuice, yeah, all mm-hmm. those. Even down to you know German Expressionism spilled over into the production design, and they would have yeah. often like. Uh, doorways that were slanted and and uh, yeah. perspectives that were off in the in the staging and um and burton rolls with a lot of that but not as much of that came through into the film noir production it was more the yeah. the contrast and the dark shadows and and so yeah go back and listen to some of our other noir months but um and we didn't set we did a, we did a neo-noir mm-hmm. one which was in january <laughs> january January, yeah, that was in I think twenty twenty one, I believe. Uh, but didn't did November we did uh, we we've done some sort of noir centric uh genre per month um is the thing, but this month we're and also kind of what Tom said again coming over from Germany all that stuff has been kind of carried over shadow cinematography or shadow cinematography. Also, a lot of times characters are cynical characters is the idea kind of shady characters and as we're kind of talking about kind of coming out of that french new wave they started spotting it as we as we kind of talked about um with the kaido cinema people with Truffaut and all those all those cats over there and um they started seeing kind of that uh as tom was saying the kind of trends of all those kind of directors coming over from europe um but it, it felt like noir specifically even though it was kind of bubbling for a little bit was a direct reaction to world war ii and kind of the the underbelly of the crime movements of the time and everything like that but yeah kind of this reaction to world war ii and the the kind of the uh atrocities of man the dark side of man um and a lot of things that get kind of the one character that gets tied to the genre of noir both noir being a style and a genre is that uh, the big running character is the private investigator, mm-hmm. the private detective. Uh, we've specifically eliminated any, any things of cops in this in this exam, in this kind of month. So no seven, which falls into kind of neo noir. Um, no LA Confidential neo noir. We're mostly talking about private detectives, private investigators. Usually these are characters who are they are outside of the police force, so in turn have a little bit less. Uh, sometimes less rules they have to follow <laughs> their morals are a little bit a little bit more shady is the thing mm-hmm. they're willing to do more for the job they delve into sometimes low rent type crimes or low rent just like investigations uh and, and a lot of times these private investigators somehow get tied into a murder is kind of the <laughs> reoccurring thing with this private investigator genre what are some movies you think of when I mean, we're talking about a lot this this month but what do you think of either character wise trope wise uh, when thinking about private investigator movies because they're all over the map some can be noir some can't be noir it's a lot of different things yeah i mean you know humphrey bogart the um yeah uh the philip marlowe kind of movies um you know we, we covered one of the things that always kind of comes comes up in those is the idea of having like uh a main case and a side case and then they always like yeah. tie into each other and in, in, in a lot of those it's like oh okay well i've got this murder but then i've got this missing husband over here that his wife reported him and then it turns out that he's tied up in the murder somehow and it's like whoa yeah. um but yeah i think that 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 like philip marlowe is just like the first person that comes to mind to me yeah. when you talk about a 
detective noir um and then you know it's kind of he, he that's one of those characters that like so many other characters have just kind of been built upon from uh you know steve martin doing dead men don't wear plaid to who framed yeah. roger rabbit this this idea of the kind of like grumpy loner uh detective sleeps in his office hasn't yeah. had a shower in a while probably has a drinking problem but you know what the the femme fatale is going to flirt with mm-hmm. him anyway exactly and there, he's always get t- woman women and drink are the ones that always kind of get in the way of a private investigator mm-hmm. is the thing and weirdly, those two things will be part of our movie today, but in a very different way, I would say, um, with women and drink. But yeah, it's a genre that, like I said, it's, it's become so tied to the noir genre. A lot of times, too, uh, not, a lot, not a lot of the main noir films have private investigators, mm-hmm. is the thing. But people just, for some reason, think that they do, or private detectives. Detective noir. Um, Detective noir. And that's, again, what we're covering this month on this episode. Yeah, I think, you know, when we got down into it, um, when we just kind of did our flat out noir month, I think I was surprised to find like a lot more of the noir films, a lot more of the genre is about the people perpetrating the crimes than it is like the people stopping the crimes. Detectives. We talked about Murder, My Sweet, which is the first Marlowe movie. But then we talked about a lot of Fritz Lang movies Mm -hmm. and all those are mostly about the criminal like the criminals themselves yeah, or the like thing. a good person who's been pushed into crime or, or that's yeah. been falsely accused or yeah a lot of yeah a lot of that kind of stuff skews that way it's like we talk about big heat where like he is a cop but he gets blamed for stuff or he gets gets it becomes like a revenge story in a way mm-hmm. um or other movies like uh you only live twice you only live once which was the henry fonda fritz lang movie which is like right before noir really takes off um, we've watched movies like the another one that's a noir film, but it's not really the perpetrator, I guess, of, of the victim or of the crime is like the setup mm-hmm. where you're just following a guy who gets tied into it somehow and is kind of unaware of it. So there's a lot of different ways you can classify noir. Um, but we're looking at the main kind of, I guess, stereotype of the genre this month with Private Investigator. And the first one we were talking about this month is the 1934 film The Thin Man released by MGM Pictures. Uh, they had more stars at MGM than the sky, Thomas. I don't know if you knew that. That's that's the big saying. Um, starring uh, William Powell and Myrna Loy as Nick and Nora Charles, a leisure class couple who enjoy a lot of drinking and a lot of banter, flirtatious banter back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a retired private detective who is now living off his uh, wife's money, who is an heiress, basically, and they're traveling around the, the country together just enjoying uh america and 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 alcohol mm-hmm. is, is the big big key thing with their dog asta of course the movie is directed by ws van dyke written by albert hackett france and francis goodrich it's based on a novel by dashiell hammett uh produced by hunt stromberg also cinematography by james wong Howe, mm-hmm. who we've talked I about several that. times in the show i believe uh one of his early movies james wong Howe, phenomenal uh chinese american uh, uh cinematographer who worked for god i think four decades maybe five decades is the thing mm-hmm. he worked for a long long time yeah you're almost six de- actually six decades started in 1917 stopped in 1975 just worked for so long one of the greatest black and white cinematographers and we're seeing him very early on in his career with his man there's certain shots you're like yeah that's james Wong Howe, <laughs> like in this movie uh he's not as fully uh, he hasn't fully mastered cinematography yet as he has in seconds 
but there's that and just like certain scenes are just fully pitch black in this movie. We've covered some of the big direct, big detectives on this episode on this on this podcast. We did murder my sweet with, with the uh, Dick Powell as Philip Marlowe. We did Elliot Gould as Philip Marlowe in The Long Goodbye. Mm-hmm. We've done the Maltese Falcon with Bogart as Sam Spade uh, on our Patreon, and the Thin Man. I don't know of another time we could actually have done Thin Man because it's one of my favorite movies and I wanted to cover it. And I was like, I think we should do this one because it kind of predates all those in terms of the film form, Mm -hmm. but it's still based on literature like a lot of those movies are. Because literature, it always kind of comes from that. This kind of detective novels kind of spur from the pulpy magazines, but also just these Hammett or Raymond Chandler novels of this period. Mm -hmm. And... I might I'll ask you first because I, I our our history I think is I I have a very big history of this movie, but what is your history with the Thin Man Thomas? Uh, this one ties. I think I've brought it up more than any course I've taken uh, in in this on this podcast. But this one goes back to my detective fiction class I took in, uh, oh. in undergrad. We uh, we watched this one because we did kind of a section on like. You know, we we did the like we did Devil in a Blue Dress. We did uh, Philip Marlowe, and then we did a section that was like cozy detective fiction. And um, this this was like the earliest example of that. A lot of that stuff comes comes later, like Murder She Wrote, or um, it's it's in the '90s, kind of on the heels of Murder She Wrote. It became like a very niche genre to be like this there's so many series there's like a very successful one that's like it, she's this woman is like a baker and she solves yeah. crimes on the side or like this woman's really good with like jigsaw puzzles but then she also the police will bring her um you know detective work like, but mi- it, like like miss marple is that the one like, like yeah, oh like yeah, yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah um but this one is kind of the earliest example of somebody being like well what if the what if the detective just kind of has like a good time it's just like a fun person <laughs> exactly it's like it takes away all those like there is like cynicism and sarcasm but with nick and nora it, it's all like weirdly at a place of love is yeah. is is the thing yeah because you uh, it's, it's kind of it's very it's kind of relevant right now because of the character has been brought to screen by mike flanagan but if you trace back kind of detective fiction it goes back to poe and august dupin mm-hmm. and you know it's poe it's like very dark and and kind yeah, of dreary and, and dreary <laughs> yeah and and then you know a lot of that the the kind of stuff that came up that like you were saying was then adapted into what we now think of as detective noir was in those lines it's like being yeah. a detective is very lonely work and i sit at home and the city is filled with crime and it's and um and so yeah this one is is very refreshing into being like yeah he's got he's, he's got his wife he loves his wife which is also yeah. i feel like pretty rare in just kind of like hollywood yeah. in general um but it's just like yeah he's just kind of fun and he, he's charming and he's always got a one-liner and he has a good time yeah very much so and and, and, and again the banter between merlo and power phenomenal again it's it's also one where like it doesn't put the the female character especially at this point in time like in the backseat mm-hmm. is, is is the big thing. Like that was the thing with this movie. What it's one that I think is easy to introduce to people who are not like well versed in old Hollywood movies is mm-hmm. the thing. I think there's something about where the their relationship is so I think genuine but also equal is the thing 
where like it's not just him ganging up on her with her, his banter it's they go back and forth constantly is the thing and that's why i think so many i, I find we, we did a movie night of it i think it was our first movie we ever did for our for our movie watch group and i was happy to see how many people were so kind of surprised but also loved the fact of this relationship between nick and nora charles is the thing and that you can't really see especially at this period of time two actors to do it as good because at this period out of the movies i've seen i i don't know of uh, of like the on-screen couple that i think we'll talk about a lot today uh have this good of chemistry between one mm-hmm. another is a thing between uh william powell and Merlin loy and it's one i revisit probably every year if i had to guess so I guess it's easy to say it's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's a great kind of New Year's Eve weekend, but week between Christmas and New Year's. TCM always does a uh, a marathon of all the movies because this would inspire multiple movies as we'll talk about later in the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's always it's a good time. It's a it's a good time, and what that's actually we'll talk about that <laughs> in this episode because there's a reason why they're having such a good time. But we'll get in that a little bit later. But let's dive into history of how the thin man got into production and with this movie we'll be diving into kind of the inner workings of the hollywood studio system because the thin man is an interesting case study for how the system worked at this time and then how it evolved over time in some ways so during the early days of hollywood many individuals moved to the city of los angeles with hopes of making it in the movie business which is becoming a, a massive thing during the silent era of these the the couple short films uh, the movies are getting longer and bigger it's getting more mainstream and everyone wants to be a part of it two of these individuals well were william horatio powell and myrna adele williams mm-hmm. born 13 years apart these two would both go down different paths before uniting uniting on screen to become one of hollywood's most popular screen couples of all time Born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Powell was the only child of Nettie and Horatio Powell. When he was 15, the family moved to Kansas City, Missouri, and after high school, Powell attended the University of Kansas to study law. But he left after one week of classes, <laughs> and he moved to New York City to attend the, uh, the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. After leaving school again after a few years, Powell would then work across the country for almost a decade, starring in plays and working in vaudeville. He would not have his first film appearance until 1922, playing Professor Moriarty in a Sherlock Holmes adaptation, starring starring opposite John Barrymore as Sherlock Holmes. First movie out of the gate. Mm -hmm. And because of that, because he's playing a villain, Powell would be typecast for the better part of the 1920s, playing villains in silent films. But once talkies were all the rage, Powell was able to move up the food chain in some way because of his voice. Due to all those years of working on the stage, Powell had developed a very strong speaking voice that not every actor in Hollywood had when transitioning from silent to, to talkies, basically. So his first starring role would come in 1929, a talkie, with the Canary Murder Case. He played Philo Vance, an amateur detective. It was based on kind of a novel series. The, and the audi- basically it would be a hit with audiences. And Powell would play Vance four times uh, during this period, during basically from 1929 to 1933. And it's kind of a precursor to, the, to his of Nick Charles. His last time playing the role would be the 1933 film, The Kennel Murder Case. I've watched one of these. They're okay. They're always just the blank murder case? 
Yes, it is. That's exactly yeah. what it is. It's the blank murder case. Gotcha. A lot of times the animals are some, in some way. Um, so at this time, Powell was signed to Warner Brothers and he was being seen as an expensive star with not much potential. The Vance movies had lifted him to some status, but Powell was not really a major movie star for Warner Brothers, they felt. And he was getting paid movie star pay, essentially. And they were looking to cut some costs because Warner Brothers, no matter what decade, is looking to cut some costs because of some financial losses. Mm -hmm. So once MGM offered to buy Powell's contract after recently barring him for a movie, Warner Brothers jumped at the chance because... They're like, he's never going to be big. He has no value for us. Let's get rid of him. It's not going to hurt us. Remember that. Myrna Williams would have a different journey uh, than Pal, actually spending a good bit of time in Los Angeles during her childhood. Born uh, uh, Helena, Montana, Myrna and her mother would finally land in Culver City when Myrna was 13 after her father died in the 1918 flu pandemic. The Spanish flu. Uh, Loy would study dance and act in several local stage productions in Los Angeles, and she would attend Venice High School. And one fun fact about this time, in 1921, during her time at Venice, the high school's art teacher would use her as a model for a fountain that would be outside the school. It would be known as the Inspiration Fountain, and it would be at Venice High School until 2002, before it was replaced by a duplicate in 2010. I bring it up because Venice High School was the uh was Rydell High School in Greece. Oh. So when they're dancing outside in the opening numbers of Greece, they're dancing in front of Mer- Myrna Loy's statue there. Oh, wow. So fun fact. Mm-hmm. Uh in 1925, now out of high school, Myrna would dance at Grauman's Egyptian Theater. Not Chinese theater, the one down the street. Yeah. The Egyptian the, the one. one that I got turned away from a screening of Macbeth at. <laughs> Still holding on to that. Still yeah. holding on. Um, so she would dance during the prologues because back then, if you've watched, like, I guess Annie, they do it with Radio City Music Hall, where mm-hmm. they'd have dances and kind of it was a big show, uh, before they'd show movies and still do it acts. at the Capitan. <laughs> they do, yeah. So, they had, so, so she was a dancer at these prologues, mm-hmm. and, and according to kind of Hollywood lore, so a photographer took her pictures one day at Grauman's, and they would later be seen by Rudolph Valentino, who was the famed silent film actor of the time and he would want her to audition for his first independent project uh but myrna would not get the role but it was the beginning of her hollywood career unlike pal she had not start off in a starring role as professor moriarty in the silent era she was an extra in a movie called pretty ladies from 1925 Hmm. one of the other extras in the same scene she was in was joan crawford also not known at the time (laughs) Not long after, Myrna was cast in a movie called What Price Beauty? And mm. while the film sat on the shelf for three years, uh, stills from the film were shown in a Hollywood magazine showcasing Myrna in some exotic makeup and kind of her lavish costume and it would catch the eye of Warner Brothers who would then sign her to a contract. And once she signed to the studio, one of the first things they did was change her name from Myrna Williams to Myrna Loy. Now, because of her unusual look for the time, Loy would be typecast like William Powell was into more villain roles, female villain roles. So vamps, femme fatales. She also is mostly cast in European or Asian descent roles was the thing hmm. at the time because of her look. Oh, um, OK, sure. But she would, yeah, but she would begin starring in a few musicals uh, at the age of the, of the talkies. 
And after her contract ran out at Warner Brothers, she ended up at MGM in 1931 and was kind of determined to get rid of just doing vamp roles. And she slowly began climbing up the star billing of her films. So, so Loy's luck would change in 1933 when she starred in two movies for W.S. Van Dyke. Her first called Penthouse, the other one being Prizefighter and the Lady. Both Penthouse was the bigger one because it was written by Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett and produced by Hunt Stromberg, all four who would be involved in the creation of the film version of The Thin Man only a year later. Now, it was around this time that Loy would star in the first film with one of her most popular screen partners, Clark Gable. Now, I never knew this. Gable and Loy would actually star in seven movies together during her career, second being to William Powell. Uh, in 1934, she would star in Manhattan Melodrama against Clark Gable, but mm-hmm. also alongside William Powell, who was loaned out from Warner Brothers at that time before they let him go over to MGM. They had already bought the rights to the Thin Man MGM had from Dashiell Hammett, and they wanted Powell to be the star of it. But they actually wanted The Thin Man to be his first film for MGM, but because of delay in filming, they made Manhattan Melodrama instead, pairing Gable, Powell, and Loy, also directed by W.S. Van Dyke, and shot by cinematographer James Wong Howe. So they're really just building the team (laughs) that's going to be around these movies. And that's how it was back in the day of the old golden age of Hollywood, is that you had a roster of people... And if you, it could be a, a, a grip, a, D, a director of photography, production designer, you rarely did not work. It's like you're off a project and then two days later, you're like, here's your assignment. Go do this project. Mm-hmm. So they just went on, on, on from project to project. And, and studios were making so many more movies at that time, which is why it was able to kind of happen that way. So it was in Manhattan Melodrama where Powell and Loy met for the first time. And actually, they didn't meet until their first scene together. The first time the characters meet, Loy jumps into a car and lands in Powell's lap. In her memoir, (laughs) Loy said, I I opened the car door, jumped in, and landed smack on William Powell's lap. He looked up nonchalantly saying, Miss Loy, I presume? (laughs) I said, Mr. Powell? And that's how I met the man who'd be my partner for 14 films. So while Manhattan Melodrama is mostly forgotten outside the fact it was the last film famed bank robber John Dillinger saw before he was shot outside of a movie theater, did you know that? That was the I, big. I, like, I somewhat remember that. Yeah. If you if you saw Public Enemies, they, that's the big thing. Where they, I've seen I've see. seen Public Enemies. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so we they covered Public walk, Enemies, did we not? We did. We, we did a Microman episode. But yeah, it's uh he uh he goes to see Manhattan Melodrama, and mm-hmm. when he leaves the theater, he gets shot by the FBI. So this was the last thing he saw. Was the the beautiful pairing of Myrna Loy and William. Yeah. Um, when they met on melodrama, the plan for the studio was for was to already have them be in the Thin Man series together. So once Manhattan Melodrama finished, they would immediately begin on the Thin Man. And while I have a lot more on the making of it, we'll talk about that more for Onset Life. So let's talk about favorite scenes, Thomas. Hmm. Let's jump into this. So what's one of your favorite scenes? Uh, I think kind of the intro of of nick and nora is is yeah. great and, and which Asta. happens 11 minutes into the movie by yeah. the way it happens late but yeah just the you know nick being here you, you, yeah you're kind of set up to you know not think that they're the main characters um and yeah. then he's just this kind of drunk at the bar and and the the couple that we have been led to assume are going to be our main characters 
recognize him and go up to speak with him. And then that's when you get Nora kind of coming in like a freight train with Asta pulling her along and, and, uh, uh-huh. and you get, uh, you know, you just see, I think immediately you see like, you know, Nick, how Nick is someone like, you know, is, is a, is a fun drunk, but can also kind of get down to business when he needs to. And, and Nora doesn't take any gumption from anybody. And the two of them rag on each other. It's, it's so great. And, and, you know, Nick is just immediately so sharp with that. Uh, you know, when she comes up and, and she says, you know, you don't remember me, do you? And he says, of course, of course I do. We've known each do. other for years. For years. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, you never know where he's going to go. That's mm-hmm. the thing. You never know where he's going to go. I think uh, Ebert said one time that Pal, Pal is to dialogue what Fred Astaire is to dance. Mm. It's how he can weave in and out of, 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 of scenes with ease, basically. Okay, let's go. Favorite one-liner from this movie because oh i have one gosh. i have i have the what i think is the far i mean they're, they're all great but there's one in particular that every time i watch it i'm like that is so good what from from lawyer pal from both this one's both of them together i mean one of my favorite ones that always laughs out is when Lloyd says uh uh will you serve the nuts and mm. then she goes i mean the the the, the nuts to the to the to the people or whatever yeah. like she realizes what she said um no what's yours the, there's a lot in here the i i read you got shot six times in the tabloids that's ridiculous you didn't get anywhere yeah. near my tabloids yeah yeah that yeah that we'll talk about that later yeah it's, <laughs> that's that's he didn't get anywhere near my tabloids um that was what i thought you were gonna say because mm-hmm. there's so many but i love to like um when 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 she like sits down like the scene when they first kind of meet and and just and talk at the bar after they've met um Dorothy Wynette, Dorothy yeah. Mar- Marino Selvin. Basically, I ain't, t- I ain't talking about this. Basically, Dorothy, Dorothy, uh, her 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 her, sorry, her father's gone missing. She doesn't know where he is, and then soon enough, a, a murder happens, and they think that her missing father did it. But she's mm-hmm. come to Nick and Nora to find out where if they could find out where her father went to is the thing. Um, but after she leaves, and and he's like, she's not my type. Is what he's, what Nick says to Nora. And she's like, you got types? He's like, yes, lanky brunettes with wicked jaws. <laughs> like, about you. And then, and like, as I pinpointed in a book I'm reading, uh, I think Becoming Nick and Nora, is that you have that, it talks about how the opposite happens, where, like, she's not a, a nagging wife. When she's like, how much have you been drinking? He's like, uh, this would be number six. And she's like, waiter, bring me five more drinks. Mm-hmm. I have to catch up. And then it's, again, the next scene is like she's hung over in bed. And she's like, what happened? He's like, the sixth drink mm-hmm. is, what, is what it was. Um, but just constant, just just wonderful back and forth between them in every scene. And also, too, it, it's um, uh, in the opening scene, too, talk about how this movie shot is like with Hal and with Van Dyke is like, they keep everything like wide. You don't do a lot of coverage. You get a lot of two shots, but you also get a lot of tracking shots, which is nice. Like there's a cool shot. Um, I think in that exact same scene where like, it starts off from like the uh, floor at the piano and like rises above the piano to see the entire room. And then we get to a shot of, of Dorothy and her, her fiance dancing. And then it like pushes through the crowd to reveal 
Nick shaking the 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 shaker basically mm-hmm. to get his martini. And I love the moment where he's like, "That's how you make or uh, to the, to to uh to dry you do it. You you always do a waltz." And he pours it in like he's the waiter, puts down the waiter's plate, and then just grabs it again when he could easily just drank it himself without having to do all that. But it's it's like it's just he's a great character from the beginning mm-hmm. is the thing. Uh, what's another scene you have? Um. I'm trying to think chronologically. Um, There's one big sequence I love, which we could we could break down if you want to. Okay. Okay. Because the because the Christmas party as a whole, mm, yeah, is just a great sequence. Yeah, I was thinking. The, I was thinking of the the kind of break in into the fallout of the shooting, but that's that's after the Christmas party. That's after. Okay. Here, here's the thing. Let's just say it right now. The mystery, I could care less about. I could care <laughs> less about the mystery. Don't care. We'll talk about that later. The mystery, it's it always like I I love this film. Mm-hmm. I, I always forget about the mystery because the care because because Loy and Power are so good together. It's like it's interesting from a structure standpoint of how to make a detective movie. It's actually well done. I just could care less about it because they're so good. It's like one of the changes they made, I think, was that I think in, in Hammett's original book, they don't start off with uh, with Weinert or or and all that, like uh, giving the backstory because it is a good it is a good job of setting up him as a as a murder suspect mm-hmm. and also the other characters, and then we meet Nick and Nor. It's a very interesting way to do it. Like it, it's a more modern way of doing it. Mm-hmm. It somewhat slows it down a little bit when you watch it now, but the original I think book just started with Nick and he just hears about the case. It's interesting how they plant the case first and yeah. then show how Nick gets involved in it. It's a it's a way more kind of unique way of doing it for the time is mm-hmm. the thing. But I could again care less about what happens in that mystery. <laughs> like I it's like, oh yeah, this I always forget like oh yeah, Julia Wolf, the the cause the character who dies. I always forget about her because that's who they're trying that's the murder they're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. Um but the Christmas party is she has and Nick is, again, someone where he's a private detective. So he deals with a lot of like shady, low life people as well as like cops and like really kind of high ranking officials. And she's an heiress. So she doesn't know any of these type people. Mm-hmm. And they have that Christmas party. And there's one of the lines where she's just like, Nick, you know, some of the most nice people or the, the nicest people is what she says. But you have all these people just like having fun. You got that one guy want to talk to his mom long distance in San Francisco, who I just love. Ma, I gotta talk to my ma. <laughs> I don't have any nickels. I don't have any. Just use our phone. It's fine. Um, and then you have uh Dorothy showing up, and you have the kind of like the other thing that he does. She comes in and she pulls out a gun. He like immediately grabs it, and she's like, "Nick, you're hurting me." He's like, "Yeah, that was the point. <laughs> like that that was what I was trying to do." <laughs> He's like, basically, you just pulled a gun on me. Of course, I'm gonna try it. Like hurt your hand and grab it away from you. Um, but she's this great kind of like big kind of set piece. And all it's all done in just a basic room or basic apartment of bringing all these characters again with Dorothy and still like showcasing the murder with this, with their new lifestyle. So that's the thing that one really talks about is that like, even by that point in the middle of the movie, Nick hasn't taken the case yet. Yeah, he's still like, I'm not a detective. They're like, I, yeah, I, heard, I, heard, you're, I heard you're a detective. You're, you're back to solve cases. He's like, nope, not me. Not me. And that's kind of Christmas, the Christmas party with Dorothy and all that, that makes him kind of decide to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but again, and you have the afterwards where like everyone's just like horribly singing like Christmas songs when they're all drunk at the end. It's it's like again, they really did a great job of just like building these side characters out uh at this point. And then talking about your tabloids line, I love the the Christmas morning mm-hmm. when he's like also like shooting the BB gun or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> And then, like, he's trying to shoot the balloon or something, and he actually shoots the window, and he, like, pretends to go back to sleep. <laughs> and she's, like, watching him the entire time, and she's like, are you happy with yourself? He goes, what? What happened? <laughs> What's going on? Um, But, yeah. Do you have another one? Um, I mean, I like... I I, I like the, the brother... I, you know, coming back to Sext- this sex- time around. Sex- sexagenarian. Sexagenarian is a great yeah. line, too. Sexagenarian is a great line, I think yeah. it, it, um, Especially, with, I think he did because he's a sexagenarian. We can't print that. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's self-admitted. Um, <laughs> yeah, when, when he's asking them to, like, see the body, and they're like, We're, we'll bring it up for you. Might be a sadist. Yeah. I, like how he says, I like the way he says he's, he might be a sadist. A sadist. Um, uh but it, watching it this time, it reminded me there's a there's a meme uh, I've seen a few times. that's like, you know, like people people say like <laughs> people say like no one was autistic before this generation. But your grandfather used to like keep model trains in his basement or something like that. And yeah. I was watching this guy. I was like, oh, OK, yeah, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> Gilbert is his name. Gilbert. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's yeah. I like when he, I like at the end when he tries to lie about seeing his dad. He's like, "Oh no, I saw, I saw dad too." And I, she's like, "I saw dad too." No, he didn't. That's a lie. He's like, <laughs> "If you saw him, I saw him." <laughs> he just wants to be involved in the case <laughs> so much, so much. Um, another one I like too before that is when the the guy comes over at night. I think it's the after the Christmas party, and this is what prompts him to, to take the case. When that guy comes over and like pulls a gun on him and mm-hmm. Nora, and again, another line just goes, "All right, shoot." I mean, ask your question. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and the guy, like, when he says, all right, shoot, the guy actually, like, makes the motion. He said, no, 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 I mean, ask your question. Well, there's a great Don't line. Shoot. I can't remember exactly what the word, but the guy's like, you know, like, oh, I, I know, like, so-and-so, and he he told me that you're a good guy. And he's like, oh, they never should have let him out of prison or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he tells you you're a good guy. Um... And that guy's just so like, you call the cops and he's like, dude, I didn't know it was you. Like, what the, what are we talking about? They just came because they heard you, like, you shot a gun. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and then and then after that, when he actually decides to take the case, um, and Nora is all like, I want to be involved, I want to be involved. I love the kind of interplay with uh, of course the other cop as well, when they're I'm going I'm going with you, and he puts her in the in the cab and he's like, Grant's tomb. And <laughs> takes her off uh and that kind of later phone call he's like how'd you like grant's tomb i'm making one just for you back their their banter is just it's i i don't know there's other on-screen couples for sure at this point but i don't know of as many maybe like like i don't know if if, if, if tracy and hepburn have this level of banter with ease like mm-hmm. they're great but i don't know i don't know if anyone really competes with with pal and loy in this period of time yeah and i mean you know it's, they are. it's it's you know you you immediately go to someone like that because it is like it is like screwball energy yeah it is but but it's like we we just how rarely we've we've talked about like anytime you make like a sequel to 
a, yep. a great romantic comedy it's like always has to be about them breaking up or like them having marital problems or whatever because like people want conflict and yep. so in taking like a good rom-com couple and then letting the conflict be a murder or you know something outside yeah. of the two of them it gives you such a great opportunity and it's so rare in in film yeah. to just like have a great couple and have them be totally solid and have great yeah. chemistry and have a great, you know, have a great sense of humor with each other. And like none of it is that like they they don't have problems. <laughs> the problems yeah. are, are solving this murder. Yeah. And like where where is the next drink coming from is kind of the thing, too. Mm -hmm. um, like it, it is because, again, they actually talk about that in the book I'm reading on them is that like. And almost feel like MGM didn't realize what they had. And then once they had like, oh, shit, we got to capitalize on this. Mm -hmm. And like. The first thing they did was like try to put them in movies that had like a two pair like a pairing or whatever that wasn't tailored for them. But they always try to work towards like doing rom coms with them where they're not together at the beginning, they get together at the end. Mm -hmm. Because the thin man, like I said, is such a rare feat where it's like you're watching a married couple and it's not like an Adam's rib situation where it's like it's a married couple who they're now opposing lawyers or whatever mm -hmm. one another. Like you don't have that. It's like literally just like, oh, it's an external conflict they're actually trying to solve that doesn't really put a wedge in between them. It's mm -hmm. like she wants him to do the case. She wants him to go back to his job so he can like have fun because to her it's so new and different for her and she wants to be involved. I do like the moment, which is one of the strongest moments of them as, as like characters, is when he's taken the case and he's going to go off to Weinert's store Mm -hmm. and she's now worried about him all of a sudden he's like i thought i want you want me to do this like yeah i want you to do this but i don't want you to get killed doing it is the thing and like she refuses to kiss him and he's like okay and he leaves and then she runs after him and he's just like she's like well you sure you'd be careful and he's like i'll be careful and they actually kiss then and then she looks to ask she's like i swear you better take care of him mm -hmm. i swear and it's just like a great little sweet moment between them where they had a conflict that could have been a massive argument but it's immediately squashed because their love is the most powerful thing in the entire in the entire movie, really. Mm -hmm. um, they're still in this very interesting honeymoon phase uh, with these two characters. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. And then, of course, I, I love him going to, to Weinert's store and you can tell it's shot by James Wong Howe here where they're just shooting scenes in complete darkness mm -hmm. and just one kind of uh, light with either the flashlight or then you have the lamp. I love the reveal where he's going through Weinert stuff and then the other dude shows up and he starts talking to him without a light on. And then he's like, he goes, don't move or that dog's going to like, like rip you to shreds. And then Asta runs on the corner. Yeah, that's and, a great, it's and, a great visual gag because the guy can't see Asta. And so he's like, yeah, watch out for my dog. And Asta's just yeah. like hiding behind a table. <laughs> but then you see Pal like, like, wait, where the hell did he go? <laughs> Um, and he's like, it's okay. You can come out now. You won't hurt are you? But yeah. And then, and then, yeah. And then what else we have? Cause then you have the big kind of finale. Yeah. It's great. I'm going to gather everybody yeah. together and I'm going to reveal my full case. Yeah. Which by the way, I thought about a little later was not in the book. No, was not in the book. It was very different in the book. Um, but yeah, but yeah. And, and pal, just the way they, now it's, it's showing also the strength of Goodrich and, and Hackett's writing. And also Van Dyke's direction is that they're able to have a table with a lot of suspects and you're never losing anyone. Mm 
mm-hmm. is the thing. And you also it's 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 a it's building up to the reveal of who the killer is. And it's you don't at that point you don't really know is the mm-hmm. thing. Um because you haven't been piecing the it's like it's very like it's Perot or it's also now with like glass onion stuff where like uh, Nick is very much it, but then you have Nora. So you have actually the audience surrogate. Like, can you just get on with it? This is the longest dinner I've ever heard. <laughs> is what she says. Um, like, it's just really, really great between both of them at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yeah, and then you have the big reveal, and then you're just like, great. Then you're then they're off on the on the train to San Francisco to have a have a fun time together and drink the New Year's away. Mm-hmm. New Year's away. Yeah, and they're taking Dorothy um, and. Uh... Was it Tom? Yeah, and, yeah, and 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 I, and I love the part where they're like, "I'm so ha- I'm, I, I thought they'd never leave or whatever," and they're just all like both like they're happy their other ones are gone so they can spend time together. Um, but it's where it's like Nick and Nora have this both young love, but all it's like young love with old banter. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It's like it, it's they have they're still in this honeymoon phase, but they still have like they're like a married couple, like an old married couple bickering back and forth. But it's all done, not out of hate, is the thing. Pretty girl. Yeah, she's a very nice type. You got types? Only you, darling. Lanky brunettes with wicked jaws. Leo, compliments to see you. Who is she? Oh, darling, I was hoping I wouldn't have to answer that. Come on. Well, Dorothy is really my daughter. You see, it was spring in Venice. I was so young, I didn't know what I was doing. We're all like that on my father's side. By the way, how is your father's side? Oh, it's much better, thanks. And yours? Say, how many drinks have you had? This will make six martinis. All right. Will you bring me five more martinis? Leo, line them right up here. Yes, ma'am. All right. On set life. So when talking about shooting in the film, we have to bring in two specific things that are happening in the country at this point. Because we haven't really talked about one of these yet, which is very key. Um, but the first one, at the end of 1933, prohibition was repealed in the United States of America. Yay. After almost a decade of the sale and consumption of alcohol being illegal, alcohol was now readily available to everyone. So people wanted to drink alcohol again. But the other big event leading up to the summer of 1934, Hollywood was under great scrutiny from several religious organizations due to the morals portrayed in movies. It was the summer of 34 when Hollywood decided to finally crack down on their own censorship, creating the production code administration that would govern what was shown or said in movies. It was known as the Hayes Code. We've talked about many times in the show when talking about older films. And the PCA would be headed up by Joseph Breen, who was like, like big Catholic, anti-Semitic, like really conservative type guy on all this. And I say all this because the thin man somehow sneaks in and is made and released in between these two events. Mm. So you're seeing kind of the drinking being more openly available in movies and not big criminals. But then you're also seeing things like that tabloids line or whatever, these more sexual kind of uh, uh, charged lines coming in before censorship can really begin to crack down. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the last movie of its era in a weird way. But how it slipped in before those two things. Let's talk about it. So in December of 1933, Dashiell Hammett's novel, The Thin Man, was published in a condensed form in a magazine called Red Book. Now, after a bidding war, 
MGM announced on January 24th, 1934, they were turning Hammett's novel into a movie. A week later, they would sign W.S. Van Dyke to direct the movie. On February 14th, they announced they were barring William Powell from Warner Brothers to star as Detective Nick Charles, and that Myrna Loy would star as Nora Charles, his wife. They also announced that same day that Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett would write the script, which they finished by March 29th. Filming would begin on April 12th, and on May 25th, The Thin Man would be released in theaters in the United States. So to show you how fast they were moving at this point in time, the book was published and turned to a movie for the big screen in only six months. And that was with the movie being delayed so Powell and Lloyd could make Manhattan melodrama in the process. Wow. Not even like, because a lot of times what was happening at this point they talk about is that Hollywood, like always now, was just buying up like books and stuff to make because they basically, they couldn't, they had they were, they were constantly making movies. They had to keep the like, the the assembly line going but it's still rather fast of how quickly they bought a book really before it was published in novel form Mm -hmm. and was already on the big screen before most of the country had even like read the the book essentially um so a reason why the movie moved so fast was a combination of director ws van dyke's direction and the chemistry of pal and loy Now, Van Dyke was known in the industry as a very efficient filmmaker, gaining him the nickname One Take Woody. Van Dyke would often not bother covering shots or shooting multiple shots within a scene. Uh, He felt actors lost their fire a few takes in, so he didn't like doing multiple takes. He also encouraged improvisation from Powell and Loy. Uh, One example of this was during a rehearsal of Powell's first scene of making his martini, and Van Dyke told him to walk the scene and as the crew was getting ready, like putting up the lights and fixing the lights and stuff. So Powell made the martini, bantering with the other actors, and all of a sudden heard, that's it, print it. And that was the scene, and he thought it was rehearsal. <laughs> uh, reports say the filming took 18 days to shoot. Well, some actually put down at 14 days. So that's kind of the range you're looking at. When talking about his time with Lloyd, Powell said, when we did a scene together, we forgot about technique, camera angles, and microphones. We weren't acting. We were just two people in perfect harmony. Many times I played with an actress who seemed to be separated from me by a plate glass window. There was no contact at all. But Myrna has the happy faculty of being able to listen while the other fellow says his lines. She has the give and take of acting that brings out the best. And that's kind of a big thing that everyone kind of talked about is that she had played so many supporting actors, opposite big name people. She had developed the skill of just listening and not waiting for her next line. Mm-hmm. And now when she had the ability to actually have more lines, she was still in, in that ability. She was listening constantly to her, her acting partners, what it was. And many people noticed ha- how great they were together as Nick and Nora Charles. Um, and now let me backtrack to the prohibition part. So I don't know if this is one of the goals, but at some point it was said, we got to showcase drinking. Mm-hmm. Because it was the first time in a long time, if really ever at this point in time, in like really big movies, where you could show characters openly drinking without worry of breaking the law, and they weren't criminals. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the movie popularized drinking so much that a certain type of martini glass was named in their honor, becoming the Nick and Nora glasses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the was. little kind of like eggy. Yeah. Yep. Were named were named after them. So basically, m- more people probably know what those glasses are. Versus actually knowing <laughs> the movie of the Thin Man and where it comes from. So when writing the script, uh, Hackett and Goodrich said they had never read mysteries before. 
So they focus less on the mystery of the movie and more on the relationship of Nick and Nora. <laughs> that kind of plays. Yeah. So it, so it's funny, as they said, even though they didn't read any mysteries, they somehow stumbled into some parts of the genre or the, the cliches of it all. One of those was the ending, as I said, was when Nick and Nora gather all the suspects as Nick relays the entire case. Apparently, this was not an original in Hammett's original novel. He actually preferred the film version of it. It was a more simplified version of basically Nick. Oh, this guy did it. We're good. And just kind of moved on. Not all the characters were present. Mm-hmm. Pal was very nervous for this scene because he had so many lines. I believe he even said he didn't even know he was saying half the time during the scene. Uh, it was one. It was the one time on the movie they had to do a lot of takes for the filming of, of the scene. But one thing that happened uh, during the scene was they were serving oysters during the mm-hmm. dinner scene. Not and a fan of they oysters. Were, they were serving them under hot lights, and basically, Lloyd said by the, by the time they finished filming, no one wanted to see another oyster again in their lives. Oh man, yeah, I'm surprised nobody got sick off of that. Yeah. Uh, and before we move on to Aftermath, I have to talk about Asta, whose real name was Skippy and was a wire fox terrier. So during the filming, a- actors were actually not allowed to interact with Skippy because the trainer felt it would break his con- concentration <laughs> when on set. Now you're saying like, well, come on, it's just a dog, whatever. But Skippy <laughs> was one of the most accomplished canon actors of all time. Okay. So most canon actors at this point were paid $3.50 a day. Skippy made around $250 a week, $250 a week at his peak. Uh, he did several wow. countless movies. Uh, he was in Bringing Up Baby. He was, the, I think, the main dog in Bringing Up Baby. Hmm. Uh, he would appear in the first three movies of the Thin Man series, and he would live to be 20 years old, passing away in 1951. Uh, he was only, I guess, three at the time of making this movie. So, Aftermath. The film was released on May 25th, 1934, to really immediate success, box office-wise and critically. On a budget of $231,000, it made $1.4 million worldwide in box office, which at that point was amazing, basically. And MGM realized they had struck gold with the Thin Man series, also the pairing of William Powell and Myrna Loy. And everyone talked about how great they were. Uh, New York Times said it's an excellent combination of comedy and excitement, and it appeared on their top 10 of the year list. Um, Variety said the Thin Man was an entertaining novel, and now it's an entertaining picture. For its lead, studio couldn't have done better than Pick Powell and Miss Loy, both of whom shade their semi-comic roles beautifully. Um, everyone loved this movie. It ended up being nominated for four Oscars uh, at the time. Best Picture best screenplay i believe best best after screenplay i guess and uh i believe pal was also nominated for best actor for his role in the movie not Lloyd though hmm. sadly yeah um uh did you watch the trailer i sent I you by the way yeah so the trailer consisted of they they filmed actual footage for this movie for for the trailer and it's philo vance who was the original detective pal played talking with Nick Charles, the new detective mm-hmm. he's playing. Just a weird <laughs> thing. Uh, I don't know how they dealt with the rights issues of this at the point in time, um, but they somehow did. It's like, I mean, it's it's basically like having Chris Evans from Fantastic Four talking to Chris Evans of Captain America, <laughs> just for some, for some reason. 
which now doesn't make sense because the rights issues are, are solved. Uh, yeah. But the aftermath of this movie. So I told you how easy it was to make this movie. It happened so fast. Well, the next time MGM was trying to do a pairing of Pal and Loy didn't happen as fast. So originally, right after this, MGM's like, yo, we got we got something hot. We got to put them together. Let's do another Philo Vance movie. And Pal's like, I'm not doing that character again. Like, I don't want to do it. I'll do <laughs> Nick Charles. I won't do that. So they go to Merle Loy, and Merle Loy's like, hey, I'll do it if you pay me the amount that William Powell makes. Because Merle Loy at this point is still under like a very low tier contract at MGM. And they're like, we're not going to have you. We're not going to pay you more. And she's like, cool. I'm not going to work then. So she leaves and just doesn't doesn't work for a year boycotting MGM until they agree to pay her more money. So it ends up taking two years, which in Hollywood time at that point in time is a long time. Mm Mm-hmm two years to make a sequel to the thin man. Uh, she comes back just because of scheduling stuff and kind of the placement of everything. She ends up making a few more, few more movies with Clark Gable during this time in third and 35, 35 and 36. And then they do after the thin man and after the thin man, they put some more money behind it. That $200,000 is now like almost $700,000. Uh, budget. They actually shoot a little bit on location in San Francisco, which is where they're going to at the end of The Thin Man. And they bring back W.S. Van Dyke to to direct it. They bring back uh, Albert Hackett and Francis Goodrich to write it. Hackett and Goodrich hate doing this. They don't <laughs> want to write this again. Um, they actually had to hire Dashiell Hammett again because he still owned the rights to the characters. And they had him kind of break out a story. Because I think The Thin Man was Hammett's last novel that he released is the thing because he really started binge drinking and everything and didn't write as much, but he wrote the story for um, for another Thin Man or after The Thin Man, which is the sequel to, to The Thin Man. Hmm. Um, that one stars Jimmy Stewart. Have you seen Have you seen any of the sequels of this? I don't think so. I think I've just seen this one. Yeah. Okay. Uh, they're They're good. Jimmy Stewart's in the second one. He's good. I haven't seen the last one. But you really can't go wrong with these next few in the in the series. So after Thin Man comes out, even bigger hit. Last one made one point four million dollars. This makes three point one million dollars. Wow! At this point in time, and so MGM's just like MGM's almost like feels like they're trapped because they're like, look, if this was a B movie with B actors, we'd be making four of these every year. Mm-hmm. Is the thing like it basically a TV show? But because this these movies have catapulted Myrna Loy and William Powell to being such big stars, they can't afford making these into A pictures, basically. So they're like, damn. Well, after after the Thin Man, William Powell gets rectal cancer. Is oh my the gosh. And so they can't do a sequel to the to to After the Thin Man. And they talk about recasting him is the thing. You can't do that. Exactly. And Myrna Loy's like, look, if you're recasting him, I'm not doing it. And so they're going to bring in a whole new team to make the sequel. And then finally, I guess, because of fan outrage, once they were kind of reported it, uh, they waited until William Powell got better. And he came back and did another thin man uh, with the same team. Uh, Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett. So at the end of after the thin man, a little bit of spoiler alert, it ends with, with Nora telling Nick that she's pregnant because 
Hackett and Goodrich like, we don't want to write this again. <laughs> if we tell her that if we t- if we make it, she's pregnant, they'll never do a sequel to this movie because they'll have like a couple with a kid running mm-hmm. around solving murders and the, because it made so much money. They're like, well, shit. <laughs> and so they come back for the next one. Last the another thing as, as the third one in the series. But that's also a big hit. Um, and so they end up doing several of these movies. They do, and it becomes every few years, not as often as say like the Andy Hardy series with Mickey Rooney at this point, where you like mm-hmm. fourteen of these movies. They only made six films in the Thin Man series. One in nineteen thirty six was the, with after the Thin Man. Nineteen thirty nine for another Thin Man. Nineteen forty one for Shadow of the Thin Man. Nineteen forty five for the Thin Man Goes Home, and nineteen forty seven for Song of the Thin Man. So. One thing I want to bring bring up with this of how everything kind of changes is when the war happens, the whole idea of drinking goes out of the series because of people rationing, uh, like rationing alcohol and things like that. So they actually like add in scenes to explain why Nick isn't drinking anymore in the <laughs> series because of the war. Uh, and also there's a big gap between 1941 and 45 because Myrna Loy actually leaves Hollywood for two years to go work for the Red Cross. And she actually gets pretty high up in the Red Cross doing stuff for the war effort at the time. Oh, wow. Also, W.S. Van Dyke, who was the director for, I think, the first four movies, uh, actually, and he gets, gets, a, can, gets, has heart disease and lung cancer, but won't do any medication. So instead, he just commits suicide instead. Oh, my God. Yeah. So they have to get new directors for the later ones, but they're like, he directed most of these movies is the thing. So they have like these weird things that happen that prevent more of these movies from happening, but yet they still made six films together. <laughs> and in all William Powell and Marlon Loy made 14 movies together. Six of them being this one. Um, the last one they made together, I believe was in 1947. And she just makes a cameo is what it is. It's kind of this end joke where, in the movie, I think it's the the senator was discreet is what it is, um, where you, they, they talk about his wife the entire movie, but you never see her. Mm-hmm. And the end of the film is him meeting his wife and it ends up being Myrna Loy. And because literally people in America this time thought they were actually married <laughs> to one another with when they actually went to like hotels for like promo stuff. They would book them in the same room. Like basically, the hotel would book them in the same room thinking they were husband and wife is what it was <laughs> because they were on screen together so often was the thing. So The Thin Man is now considered one of kind of the best of its era. Um, Ebert praises it. Akira Kurosawa said it's one of his favorite films of all time. And it's now played annually, as I said, on TCM because of New Year's Eve stuff. Got a recent uh, like Blu-ray release. Uh, looks great, and hopefully more and more people find it as time goes on. And they actually have, so it's exciting to see how it continues to have some sort of impact. Eighty years later, mm-hmm. almost, and it's right before noir really takes off. It's right when screwball comedy is in its peak. It's a very interesting mashup of all these different things. So, with all that, Thomas, what worked about the Thin Man? Uh, I mean, I think we've we've talked about it at length now, but the, just the chemistry between two of them, and and like we said, yeah. just kind of letting them be a happy couple that you know is not 
you know it's not that kind of you know as the as the haze code would would come on the idea of like what a happy like yes dear uh lucy you've got some explaining to do kind of couple uh you know not like she gives him as much as she takes from him and and that dynamic is just fantastic and and like you said yeah yeah it's, it's a fine mystery but like that that is what the two of them is what keeps you coming back and what obviously kept the franchise going yeah and i i, I actually like a lot the ones i've added in the last one i, I actually kind of like the thin man goes home because it, it basically it takes him back to his like small like very like, almost like frank capra town mm-hmm. is the thing and a murder happens and it's just it's, it's really interesting how they evolve with with the time is mm-hmm. the thing and how they evolve the series but yeah like i said their their chemistry is is really unmatched with this period of time it's it's one of the like we we really we haven't really had like nowadays like you get three movies together you're on-screen couple you're not seeing 14 films of jennifer lawrence and bradley cooper together Mm -hmm. you're not seeing 14 films with um like several other people that that have have, emma stone and gosling Emma Stone and Gosling, like they three, three in your on-screen couple. Really, two nowadays. You're in two in your on-screen couple mm-hmm. if it happens close together. And I feel like it's interesting how the film has become more of a business nowadays. But Hollywood just doesn't really know how to like find those actors that that have that great chemistry together. Um, but yeah, that works. I think how cinematography works. Um. I think the script of Goodrich and, and Hackett, specifically with the banter, uh, really works. So, so yeah. Did anything not work here, Thomas? I don't think so. Like you said, it's not the strongest mystery I've seen in, in a movie, but it it it's it it doesn't not work. It um yeah, it's all there. The pieces are all there. It it is kind of purposefully. I, I do like the way that they kind of weave it pretty large so then when yeah. everybody does come together you're like man as an audience member you're like it's man, a big it, it's a big cast yeah it could be any of these people right up until yeah this is one of those that it's like they they give you the clues but you still need him to tell you like you yeah you you still you're still relying on him to reveal it at the end you're not sitting there going oh it's definitely that guy um yeah so so yeah i think i think it it works it's not the strongest thing here uh obviously like we said it's not what it's remembered for but but it's i wouldn't say it doesn't work here yeah it, I, I will say i appreciate it more this time when reading the book on it talking about how how goodrich and hackett like change up the beginning mm-hmm. to where it's like setting up the idea of like of who the who the possible suspect is mm-hmm. and what the mystery might be about like is it about these these missing bonds like what's is it about this affair is it about this it's about what's him it being about? missing you know His, yeah. yeah yeah what is is he is did something happen to him that's why he's missing oh is he missing because it's a revenge plot oh there's this other guy who apparently tried to blackmail him is it because he's he's getting back at him it's all these different things that tries to, to add up very early at or put in your mind early on and while you're just wanting to get to nick and nora it's it's still a good way to set up a mystery as we're talking about mm-hmm um but yeah all right now i have film facts so there were there are multiple radio plays for this that actually at least one that powell and and uh, loy actually did together uh in 1936 so two years later um 
for Lux Radio. I picture doing that now, where like you just two years later get a podcast version of the movie with the exact cast mm-hmm. of the film. That's what it would be. There's um, there's several yeah. of those. I've got like criterions. I can't think of exact. I know Arsenic and yeah. Old Lace. They did one. Um, yeah, and sometimes it'd be like ten years later, and then they'd be like, "Ah, let's yeah. run it back." Uh, you know, especially since you didn't, people didn't have home video at the time. So it was like, man, I, yeah. really, I really loved that movie. I'd love to see it again. It's like, well, they're going to play it on the radio with the same cast coming up. <laughs> and everyone gather around and yeah, and, and listen to it. And basically it was mostly the same cast that was in the movie. Uh, one, two, former actors reprised their roles in the movie. And W.S. Van Dyke was the host of the show. Um, they also tried to do a TV series for it. Um, it was a half hour show just called Thin Man that ran for two years out on NBC um, sorry Peter Lawford of uh, um, I guess uh, oh, was he in the Rat Pack is what it, Peter Lawford was mm-hmm. is that the one I'm thinking of I'm pretty sure he's in the Rat Pack um, uh, David yeah he was David Niven uh, and Maggie Smith played them in Murder by Death Murder mm-hmm. by Death in 1976 yes um there was a nick and nora musical and like of course there was if there's anything i've learned from this show it's that everything is always a musical musical. at some point yeah there's always a musical um i think it was barry bostwick is who was the (laughs) the who is nick in it and joanna gleason who's this baker's wife into the woods that they were they were nick and nora she's uh it lasts like a week if i'm not mistaken (laughs) Is she, is she wait i'm gonna i'm gonna sound dumb if this is wrong no, go ahead. yeah 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 she's dirk diggler's mom in boogie nights oh yeah she is i'm not dumb uh <laughs> a writ uh book written by arthur lawrence who did gypsy i believe is what it was hmm. um it lasted uh, it was a brief run of nine performances in 1991. Oof. Is what it was. Ouch. Yeah. Uh, it was remounted. Uh, it was redone for the first and only time uh, by San Francisco's 42nd Street Moon in April 2015. So it, it was. It did not last long. Uh, time called it a crashing bore. Oh no. Um. So yeah. Um. What else they have here? There was a TV movie as well. So a lot of different like kind of remakes of it. Um, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. Yes. The movie is an homage to the characters Nick and Nora from this movie. Some I, millennials. It, you know them. <laughs> did you ever see Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist? I, yes. I've watched it within the past year, weirdly enough. Oh, I don't know why. That is one I'll always remember. I never saw Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, but I bought a ticket to it. And then I snuck into How to Lose Friends and Alienate People instead. Oh, the Simon Pegg movie. <laughs> With Kirsten Dunst. Oh, I remember that. Yep. Jeff Bridges. That was a that was a rental. That was a rental. Hmm. Um and then also too. Well, actually I'll say that for later. And, and when I when I ask questions. Uh awards. The Beatrice Strait Award, actor actually limit scenes that kills it. I feel like I know who you're gonna pick here. Uh Limited scenes. Uh, I'm going for the brother. That's why I thought you were gonna pick. Yeah. Yes, I, I would go. I would go with him as well. Um, the sexagenarian is, is just a great, great line. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, he's a sexagenarian. He admitted, like I said, he admitted one. We can't print that. Why not? <laughs> it deals with sex. It's just saying he's 60 year old. Year old. 
That's that's what that means. <laughs> um, yeah, William Henry. Um, did mostly B movies. Uh, born in L.A., passed away in L.A. in 1982. Um, lot of television, lot of television. Worked from 1925 as his first credit or first role was the street urchin in 1925, and his last role was in 1971. Hmm. For almost fifty, almost fifty years. There's a physiological as well as psychological angle in my father's relationship with Julia Wolf that the police have overlooked, and I think it settles the whole question. You see, my father was a sexagenarian. He was. Yes, he admitted it. A sexagenarian, eh? Yes. Yeah, but we can't put that in the paper. Well, why not? Oh, you know how they are, sex. Well, then just say that he was sixty years old. Is that what that means? Of course. Hey, that's my hat. Come and get it, but it's hot. Andy Potts X Factor Award. Sporting actor, actress as the most memorable. I think it's Asta. Interesting. I would agree with you because I, I don't think like Mario Sullivan talked about like that she didn't have a great time on set because there was nothing for her to do. And I kind of agree with her. I think she's she's very charming in this. Yeah, she's but it's charming. not it's not my favorite role of hers. I, I, I like her a lot. And uh, she was she was Jane in the Tarzan movies for anyone who. Uh, yes, the has, early Tarzan has, ones. has seen any of those. But um, yeah, I, I like her a lot. She's also one of those. Uh, one of those like golden age Hollywood actors who came back and had like a surprisingly good career as as an older like just you know just Marine, de- yeah. just decided at some point that she was was okay with playing like a, a matron type and was very yes. good at it. Um, uh, Barbara Stanwyck is another one I think of that that was just mm-hmm. kind of cool with that and did did a great job with it. Um, so a lot of respect for her, but yeah, this is not this is not her best role, but yeah. um. She's also Marina Sullivan. She's also uh, Mia Farrow's mom. Oh, really? I did not know, know that until just now. <laughs> Nepo babies, they're all around us. Yes, yeah, so that's why she's in Hannah and her sisters. Is what it is in mm. eighty in eighty six. But yeah, so we're going. She was Asta. in. What did I just watch? Something with her. Re- oh, oh, uh, Peggy Sue got married. Yes, she is in Peggy Sue got married. Yeah. Um, she, in a big gap. It's like, oh, she's in the tall T, uh, the Bud Boddicker, uh, um, uh, Randolph Scott Western. And she did a lot, a lot of gaps. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I, I, I like her a lot as a performer. I think she's very charming in this, but yeah, she's, she's yes. not given a lot to do. Yeah, but Asta, I think Asta, Asta makes sense. And then finally, the Gene Hackman MVP award, person who carries the movie director, actor, etc. I think you got it. It's it's got to be both of them. It is without without question. They have um, such amazing chemistry that is so hard to match. That as we'll talk about in our next question, uh, people have tried are trying to do it, but it, it, it's it's weird how well eighty years later, almost ninety years later. Yeah, no, ninety years later now. Uh, next year this movie still holds up in terms of their chemistry and their banter. It, mm-hmm. it really is astounding to see is a thing. Uh, and that Van Dyke is smart enough to be like, we're just going to let them cook. We're just yeah. going to take a step back. We're going we're to do, do a bunch of double, like a, a bunch of two shots here and let them just go with one another. And it's, it's really incredible. I hope you're satisfied. Huh? Where am I? You're not in a shooting gallery. Ah, but sugar, this is the nicest Christmas present I've ever had. You act as though it were the only Christmas present you ever had. Hmm. Say, where'd you get that wristwatch? 
Christmas present. Yeah, who gave it to you? You did. <clears throat> well, you must admit I've got pretty good taste, haven't I? You finished with this? Yes, and I know as much about the murder as they do. Oh, I'm a hero. I was shot twice in the Tribune. I read where you were shot five times in the tabloids. It's not true. He didn't come anywhere near my tabloids. Ah, bullseye. All right, Thomas. Final questions. Mm -hmm. If you were to remake this movie today, which, by the way, it was just announced literally this month (laughs) that they're trying to remake this movie, this series. No fun. I mean, I guess we are in that kind of like... Obviously, the the uh, Agatha Christie adaptations are doing well. You've yeah. got the the Ryan Johnson kind of universe. We're we're, we're back in a little, yeah, in a little uh, mystery groove mystery, right now. Yeah. So 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 basically, it was originally announced in the early 2010s that Johnny Depp was going to star in it, and Rob Marshall was going to direct it. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't. I don't really care for any of that announcement. I I don't think Depp would be good as William Powell. I just don't think he would. I think I think he's he, as I've seen him do. I think he do comedy. I don't know if he's Powell's he's not. He's comedy. he's like mumbly comedy. You know, he's like you know. It's, yeah. Like yeah. him and him and Tusk, great, great comedy yeah. and Tusk. Or even you know, it's like his. I'm just thinking and, of like and Jack and Jack is amazing. Every uh, successful uh, uh, character he's done is like kind of awkward and like kind of out of place. Um. Yeah, I've never seen him. Now that I think about it, I mean, this is someone you know with a very well-respected acting acting career. I can't think of like one time I've really liked him in like something where he was just like you know like completely cool and confident in where he's at. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I'm trying to think either. Even his like early dramatic stuff of like Gilbert Grape, like he's he's a more insecure character and yeah so, like, i mean so like, like shy, you know like yeah. i guess like blow is it, but like that's you know that's not comedic but um yeah but even like, like hunter Spar- s thompson Spar- is like kind of all yeah. over the place like sparrow's his best comedic portrayal yeah and his ever. whole thing is that he's like you're, you're always you think he's always out of place and then it ends up like working out for him but but yeah yeah what helped yeah. with william powell was that he was a like he was he was a villain at one point and he was casting as a more like upper upper crust guy godfrey and he like i love like, i love yeah, my man yeah. godfrey that's my man godfrey fantastic well, he, movie but that he's playing like the more middle class like the more lower class guy who's portraying him it's, it's very interesting of how he could play within classes we don't see that as much nowadays in main actors how i can play within different class structure is the thing mm-hmm. um but right now, this this October, it was announced that Margot Robbie and Brad Pitt, their respective production companies, are um, talking about a Thin Man remake. Because hmm. I don't know if it's going to be Pitt and Robbie, but they're trying to lock down the rights to it. So no casting's been done because of the strike. But they're trying to lock down rights to it um, as basically October 9th. So this past month. Um because the rights are now available. But with that, I want to ask you, Thomas, who would you cast in a modern remake of the thin man? Because I have my two. Yeah. I have my two. Yeah. I, I, I showed my hand earlier in the episode. Okay. Uh, for me, it's, it's, it's Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling. Interesting. I, I have a different pairing. I love their chemistry. I am a big Ryan Gosling as a detective uh-huh. fan. 
Uh, That's true. I'll give you that. I'm a big Ryan Gosling in a purely comedic role fan. Uh, You know, I I didn't think I thought he was a little underappreciated until this year. And then we've got the biggest movie of the year with him just like being like full on comedic. And it was fantastic. I love Emma Stone in a fully comedic role. Um, Yeah, that's 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 it for me. I'm sold on that one. But I'm I'm open to yours. I mean, it's it's I'm surprised you didn't do these two people. Because I've been I've been begging for another movie with him for a long time, and it's a different pal, and that's Glenn Powell and Zoe Deutsch. Oh, okay, yeah, I like I, that. I I I told I told David this like a year ago. I was like, it's Glenn Powell and Zoe Deutsch. If they ever do this, it's them. I do love that. I I don't know if you saw it recently. Somebody on Twitter the the trailer for his uh, rom com yeah, yeah, yeah. with Sydney Sweeney came out, and people people don't love the trailer, but um, no, no, they don't. I don't know if he's, somebody tweeted like you guys are really talking about Glenn Powell like he's going to be like the biggest star in Hollywood and he has like zero screen presence or something like that. And I was like, excuse me, excuse yeah, me, no. watch Everybody Wants Some before you come. And, and this person like replied and was like, oh, I've never seen that one. I was like, OK, back up. <laughs> watch that right now. What are you making your rulings based off of? What are you and seeing? Top Gun? Like, yeah. And then just go watch the pizza scene and set it yeah. up. Yeah. Like that was another, that's been another round of discussion about rom, 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 rom coms and romance and movies. And the big one that's been kind of popping up of late is while you were sleeping with Bill Pullman and Sandra Bullock. Mm. And it's the scene when, when Pullman's talking about he, oh, he leaned in and he's just like, what do you mean leaning? What does that mean? He's like, well, you lean it. And he starts uh, leaning in and it's this very like really, really palpable moment of mm-hmm. this chemistry between them two. Like they're about to kiss and, and everyone's like, why do why people not make movies like this anymore? And someone's like, the answer is Bill Pullman. It's Bill Pullman. That's the re- like the, he he's what makes it this scene. I love Bill and Pullman. Big Bill Pullman guy. I can't I can't back him participating in the ginger erasure of Hollywood and portraying Alec Murdoch in a Murdoch murders movie right now. <laughs> not cool. But um, otherwise, big Bill Pullman guy. Um, but no, yeah, but it's just fun. it's again we don't really it's really hard to find actors with great chemistry i think gosling and stone's a very interesting duo i you know what i have more stock in gangster squad than most people i think (laughs) but they have they've got a lot of chemistry in that movie how do you feel about sean penn in that movie yeah he's fine yeah I, I watched that opening night, by the not way. My, that's not my favorite third... Mickey Cohen uh, portrayal. There's been better Mickey Cohens out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, what, what a wild cast that movie is. But, okay, are we... Because I'm really on the Zoe deutsch Clem Powell train. I'm fine with splitting this because either one's fine. Okay. I think it's just... It, honestly, how big do you want your budget to be? Yeah. yeah, be real. Is that Stone and Gosling brings a bigger budget. Glenn Powell, Zoe Deutsch, not as big, but... the again chemistry between either of those is going to be amazing mm-hmm. and we need more of that yeah i'd watch either of these for sure yeah because my question is, i guess the bigger question is who do you who do you feel would be a buried a better married couple that's uh, the that's the big question yeah i think gosling and stone have like a, a couple more years on them so but if you're going yeah. for like a younger nick and nori i mean you they could pull it That's, off for sure. Uh, Bet Powell and Deutsch. Okay. Well, audiences, you or listeners, you decide. Yeah. Tell us what you think. Gosling and Stone, Powell and Deutsch. Or 
is there a different pair you want to see? You tell us. If you haven't watched Thin Man, just go based off what you love is the thing. Um, now, does this film fit with any other genres, Thomas? I mean, like, it, it's very much not like a screwball comedy, but it has like the DNA in there yeah it 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 has that kind of and it and it and they do have like they they don't go into it enough for i think it to qualify but but if you go back and listen to our screwball comedy month um part of what was really important to the the early screwball comedies is there being a a class disparity between the the couple and that that is like that that is here like they don't they don't harp on it but it is like Nora is, is upper class and Nick doesn't seem, you know, he was a private detective. Like he doesn't seem to be especially upper class. And so that it, it is really cool. I think how that dynamic kind of spills over, but is not the focus of the movie yeah. at all. Um, but I do think this is one that I recommend a lot of times to people who tell me they've like, you know, they've gotten really into screwball comedies. Mm-hmm. Oh, they love bringing up baby. They love it happen one night. I always kind of pull thin man out of my pocket as a recommendation. Cause I think it's, it, it feels tangential to that genre. If you like screwball comedies, you're going to like this movie, I think. Yeah. And then the other thing I would put in is this idea, not really a genre, but the idea of like pre-code movies mm-hmm. is the thing, because this coming out right at the end of the pre-code era, it's an interesting kind of like niche of pre-code comedies, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and mysteries. Um, and it, it is simple murder mystery is the thing as well we talk about private investigator but civil murder mystery um like i said screwball comedy i weirdly i wouldn't classify it as a noir is the thing as much mm-hmm. it's it's kind of a, a a proto noir is the thing um because our main characters are not really shady is the thing mm-hmm. anyway they're not they're not really you're never in doubt about what they're going to do. Like, you don't. I'm not going to see Nick turning on Nora or something in these movies. Um, but yeah, so, okay. And lastly, uh, how does this film fit within the genre of the private investigator? Um, I, I definitely think it is a, a league of its own. Like it, it is yeah. something very distinctive that we don't really get again you know there there is kind of an idea there's always this idea in detective fiction especially like the the of the like sidekick you know perot and yeah. often had a sidekick and and holmes and watson and and that is its own type of kind of detective fiction but but this the way that nick and nora are are presented and their relationship and their dynamic is is very unique i think to detective fiction mm-hmm. i mean it, it is very much a detective film but yeah it's 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 one that kind of has forged its own identity within the genre yeah one thing i would add with some of these it, just to establish certain themes or certain kind of tropes that'll happen i think thin man showcases the how an investigator will work with the actual police force. Mm-hmm. I is, this is more done in a more like you help me, I'll help you type thing. Um, and, and the, the lead police guy is more kind of bumbling police officer. Like the, like our detectives always smart. It's all like mostly every movie. The detectives always smarter than the cop is yeah. kind of the idea, mm-hmm. but this one, they're actually working together. But when we get like Chinatown and some of these others, 
they're not really working with cops. Like the cops kind of hate the private detective. They know him. There might be like one guy who's good, for, good, good buddies, buddies with them. I doubt a cop would be like, you know what, you know what, Nick, I'm gonna let you run my case and have this whole dinner party. Hmm. Um, it'd be difficult. It'd be it wouldn't <laughs> go as easily as it does here. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and I, I think too, it's like what, what I do like about the movie too. It does have moments of Pal actually investigating mm-hmm. and actually like, okay, I'm kind of gonna walk in a certain death, possible, possibly death to figure out what's going on because something's always gnawing at you. Cause even if there's always the idea of like, Oh, the case is solved. Let's move on. The detective's like, I don't think it is. I think there's something a little bit more, a good detective, a good investigator always like tries to find the real answer. Even when the answer is already out there, or I suppose the answer is already out there. They keep digging. Mm-hmm. And that's what Nick does in this movie. But he said, then you just have this really unique, fun dynamic where, they're just having a good time. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're having a good time solving murders. It's kind of what it is. Um, but yeah, I think that's it on the Thin Man, Thomas. I'm happy we got to do it finally. Yeah. I've been waiting several years, I feel like, to do this movie. <laughs> uh, and we're finally here. Um, but yeah, if you want to hear more from us in terms of more movie content, check out our Patreon. Uh, Dave and I just recently did our episode on the invasion of the body snatchers from the 19th. 50s the 50s version basically so that was the fun one to do uh thomas i'll be doing a double feature coming up soon i believe on dead men don't wear plaid and the kid detective to kind of comedy noir detective gets a little more darker than the dead men don't wear plaid but dead men don't wear plaid we'll also talk kind of talking about the probably more of the older films as yeah, well and kind how of it's the parody. golden age of detective noir yeah so more bogart so you want to hear more about bogart we'll do it probably in that double feature so stay tuned for that um, but yeah, that's what we have for this episode. Oh, actually, no, sorry, Thomas. What are we doing next week? I completely blanked. Next week, Thomas, what's the movie you're picking? We're doing what what many people have named the greatest film of all time. So, you know, it's it's uh, but it is we're here to remind you that it is also a detective film. So we'll be doing yeah. Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. It's weird. I was like, oh, yeah, this is a private investigator movie. Mm-hmm. Um, And we'll talk about how if if if. uh. If Scott, I think Scotty, right? Scotty. That, that's, yep. Yeah, let's, we'll see if Scotty is actually a good detective. Because <laughs> I think Nick is. I think Nick's a good te- de- detective. Mm-hmm. He just likes to drink a lot. Um, but we'll talk about Scotty. There next will week be spoilers for Vertigo. Vertigo. Yeah. So watch it. We didn't. I, we didn't spoil that much on this one. Like I didn't. We didn't talk about who the killer was. We didn't talk about any of that. But this one again doesn't really matter. There's it's just about been, them having fun. There's been twice in my life I've had the pleasure of showing someone Vertigo and realizing like halfway through that they had zero clue what happens in Vertigo. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh, hell yeah, let's go. Yeah, it's always like I always get upset. Like, oh, you haven't seen this movie. God, how, how, can, how come? And I was just like, I think it's kind of great. You get, yeah. to, get to watch now. Like, I'm actually jealous sometimes. I get to watch the movie without knowing anything about it I, for the I, first time. I, I will always remember my we rented i was like home over a break or something from college and i don't know why but like yeah. we watched we put psycho on and yeah we we're like halfway through and my dad it's my, i'm home visiting my parents and my dad says like says something that my mom and i just both kind of took as a joke and then like something about the mom like oh maybe the mom's up in the house or something and we both kind of like huh and then my mom was like wait, do you not know what happens in Psycho? And he was like, no, I've never seen this. And she was like, <laughs> and you never, like, it's never been spoiled for you what happens in this? He was like, no. And we were both like, huh, I didn't know that was possible. 
Well, it's like a buddy who was like, he'd never seen Sixth Sense, and he was just like, yeah, I don't know what happens. It's like, well, <laughs> I don't know how that, I don't know how that happened for you, but good for you. Never I guess. seen Ocean's Twelve. Okay, cool. That's funny. Um, but that's all we have for this episode. If you have any questions for us, feel free to kind of send podcast at gmail.com. Uh, send your questions, comments. Uh, and if you're listening to the show or a fan of the show, and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us, be sure to do so so you can stay updated on our new episodes. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And if you haven't already, be sure to write us your preferred podcast platform. I can't I can't deliver a line from this movie as good as, as any of them, but I will say, you know, let us know. Make your call on that on our casting. On the, on the cast. Yeah, leave us a little comment. Say, hey, five stars. Also, here's five stars for, for this cast choice. So Yeah, that's why you vote. And don't you touch our tabloids. That's all I guess. That's all I guess. <laughs> Um, and finally, don't forget to land follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Letterboxd, and TikTok. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. We hope to listen to more episodes soon. Bye.